Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today, sir? Yeah, I'm doing great. We had a lot of stuff to go through over this weekend. A lot of stuff, you know, I'm just overwhelmed by some of it, but yeah. I'm, I'm back, ready to talk about it. Same, same. This was indeed a historic general conference that we will be spending the episode recapping today, and I guess we'll go in chronological order. So first thing that was announced was a number of new 70s called and a whole new young men's presidency. And in that young men's presidency is Stephen J. Lund as president, brother Ahmed Corbett as a first counselor, and Brad Wilcox as second counselor. If you're from Jersey or the East Coast or you're black in the church, you definitely heard the name Ahmed Corbett before. He's had a variety of of callings in the church, particularly related to public affairs. He's also been a mission president and a stake president in uh, New Jersey. Brad Wilcox has authored several books on the subject of the atonement. He's a noted speaker in the LDS community. I don't know what kind of callings he's had in the past, but uh, this is like his first high-profile one so far as I can tell. So that's kind of exciting. Yeah, I think that I, I've never met Brad Wilcox, but I think uh, I've read a number of his pieces, and he's a very careful and thoughtful thinker. I think he really moves the conversation forward in a number of ways. It will be good to see where he's going with that. And then with Ahmed Corbett, I really loved what he said at the Black LDS Legacy Conference. Oh, like yeah. He had a really powerful talk about faith and hope and how we can really trust in God's promises yeah. and have the faith to do things that are unthinkable in many ways. That was a really good talk. I, I really want to see where things go with him and what, what he does. As do I. I just feel like this was a long time coming. Brother Ahmed Corbett getting some kind of red seat. So I am anxious to see what that means. I'm just happy to see another black American face in that sea of uh, white faces that sits on the standard conference. I mean, you know how I feel about Ahmed Corbett generally, but I feel I felt very strongly and powerfully about his remarks at the Black LDS Legacy Conference. And I'm anxious to see how those thoughts and how what he knows and what he can bring to the conversation on black LDS folks is uh, brought into this new calling of his. Yeah, this is going to be great. Indeed, indeed. And uh, also worthy of note is uh, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland's son, Matthew Holland, has also been called as a member of the 70. I mean, I told you before, this guy was... He, he's, he's actually serving as a mission president right now, I think. And previously, he was the president of UVU. Before that, he was a teacher of, I think, political philosophy and American heritage at BYU a long time ago, back when I was a student. 50 more years of Elder Holland talks, so I'm stoked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the next thing that got announced was, I think in the Saturday afternoon session, we got, we got the new logo. Yeah, this new logo. I actually looked at my phone this morning. I was uh, checking to see if conference had updated, but before I could even do that, I noticed my... Uh, gospel library icon was changed from the angel Moroni, <laughs> you know to this new logo so I, I don't i don't have any particularly strong feelings about this logo but you know it does uh there's a focus on christ which is really cool yeah and i love that it takes a non latter-day saint statue um this is from a danish church uh a J danish lutheran church in copenhagen and it really takes something that's iconic for a lot of Western Christians. And because what I would like to not have happen is say, well, you believe in a different Christ and you don't 
believe in the biblical Christ and all this other stuff that people try to say about us. And I think having something that's recognizable and having currency among Western Christians would go very far to explaining what we're really about. And I think that's important. Now, it's also important to note that because I was raised in a white supremacist environment, and so I can easily look at Jesus and see it, see a European-looking Jesus and say, oh, look, this is kind of universal, but maybe it's not. Like, how do you react to this? I didn't, to be completely honest. Like, I didn't react to this simply because I, I, I suppose in the midst of all that was happening during conference and all that I was listening for and hearing, particularly with regard to the marginalized, the logo, the statue, I wasn't really sweating the whiteness of it. Like, how this new logo looks is relatively low on my priority list of things that need to be addressed or things that need to be acknowledged. That doesn't mean I'm not going to hear people who have any kind of feeling about the whiteness of the logo. Just it didn't spark any particularly or it didn't invoke any particularly strong emotion from me. One question I had about this was when you look at that figure of, of Christ, is it masculine or is it feminine or is it somewhere in between? Because I look at it and it seems very reminiscent of many statues and paintings of the Virgin Mary. Um, he's not in a very threatening or powerful pose. He seems very vulnerable, especially when you have his um, chest half bare and you can see the wounds and the scars. I think he's not coming in a position of triumph like an imperial authority. He's really coming in a very loving and embracing way that our culture seems to almost classify as feminine-ish. Like, I don't think he looks feminine, really, right. but it's definitely not as masculine as it could have been. And I think there's something to be said about that in how we characterize, you know, gender nonconformity, like what does the role of a, a Latter-day Saint man look like compared to what the American standard of manhood is. That's very interesting. But I don't want to get too much into I don't want to get too much into that due to, due to time. But I just think uh, I love two things about it. One is that the bottom rectangle represents the cornerstone, which has to me some very queer imagery. If you look at Psalm one eighteen verse twenty two, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's powerful because that's exactly what happened to us. The builders, the experts say there's no room for you, and then God says yes, there is, and and. And those who were, were rejected end up being the cornerstone of everything, which uh -huh. really gets back to what happened with Joseph Smith in the first vision. Here he was very uneducated, very poor. He was in a really tough social and economic situation, and God chose him. I think that's powerful. Someone fairly rejected by the world ended up getting chosen. Great insight. Great insight. So uh, the next thing I got on this list is um, a call for a Good Friday fast worldwide for COVID-19. Anything stand out to you about that? One thing that I noticed is how things like this build bridges with other other Christians. Mm. Um, I don't think Latter-day Saints are used to talking about Palm Sunday or Good Friday. Or uh, Holy Week. Or Holy Week. But I think this is important. Elder Gong talked very passionately about Palm Sunday. I yeah. think pointing out Good Friday, which historically in Catholicism has been a fast day, a major fast day. Mm. Um, it's important to build these connections. And I think that that will go a long way. Right, right. Towards building goodwill, towards our missionary work, things like that. 
The other thing worth uh, noting that we got to see in the Saturday, I guess, evening session was that there were youth speakers for the first time since like the 90s. We had Sister Laudi Kauk and Brother Enzo Patello, two teenagers of color. Very significant. And again, yeah. for the first time in like two decades, we've had this. The last time we had a youth speaker in conference, I think, was 97. And before that, it was actually now Elder Matthew Holland who spoke in the uh, in the mid-80s or so. So um, I, I don't know if that's going to be a regular thing or if it'll be another 20 or so years before we have youth speakers uh, in general conference. But I just thought it was very p- powerful that we did have them speak that they were both people of color and the things that they spoke about happened to be like, they both touched on themes that uh, have tremendous implications for marginalized individuals in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that representation is important both for people of color, for young women and for yeah. youth because yeah. people then can, can look at what they said, even if what they said doesn't quite resonate with what they're going through, they can look at them and say, oh, look, there's a place for me in the church. Like, we're treasured, we're valued. I loved how, and we're going to get to this later, Elder Holland talked about the rising generation as a priority and um, that the rising generation deserves more from the church. Yeah, Douglas Holmes also uh, brought that up towards the end of his talk. And I find that uh, the moments I got the most emotional during conference were when those two talked about youth, and uh, I, I think it was also when that picture of Enzo's family came up on oh, the screen. Yeah. And it was like him yeah. and his three oh, sisters. Yeah, I about I about fell out just to see all those young people of color on that screen, and yo, I, I almost lost it, man. Like, but yeah, like some of the most powerful moments for me personally during this conference is when the youth were mentioned or highlighted in some form or fashion. And I loved, speaking of representation, the very concluding uh, We Thank the Oh God for a Prophet, where you had the choirs from around the world, including, I think, Nigeria, Mexico, Korea, New Zealand, Germany. I'm not sure which others, but it was so great to see them synchronized. Like somehow they had the same tempo and the same pitch. They must have had a recording or, or something that they listened to to make sure that it was all seamless. But I think that was so beautiful to see all those faces to see real people like the thing is about general conferences you see all these mostly men in their in their ties you know mostly older men as well but here we got to see more young people more people of color um, more women even just in the choir but also in the talks and prayers right hopefully that trajectory continues and we will have even more representation of women as things unfold definitely definitely there was a, a new proclamation unveiled during the uh, Sunday morning session, a new proclamation. The title, oh gosh, this is a mouthful. Title is The Restoration of the Fullness of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, a Bicentennial Proclamation to the World. I personally didn't feel all that moved by the thing, and it wasn't a priority for me in my study and preparation for today. But I'm definitely going to make an effort to check it out in greater detail and see if I can gain more Uh, like I said I came into conference seeking specific things and uh, not a ton spoke to me uh, during the proclamation it is nonetheless however a powerful testimony of the restoration as well as a powerful invitation to investigate it and all that followed the first vision and continues to follow it I think one of the most powerful things declared in it though is uh, something we regularly say on the show which is that the restoration is ongoing 
And it's, uh, that's always a powerful thing to remember for those who seek more light and knowledge concerning their place in the plan of salvation in the church generally. And, uh, those who would seek to empower those individuals. I know you had some thoughts you wanted to share about it. Yeah, I looked at it and I was thinking, you know, there really isn't anything new. It it encapsulates this sort of standard surface narrative of the church that we've had since the uh, late 1830s. Um, but what I thought this morning was to think about what's not there. And there's a couple of things that are not there. And one is there's essentially no polemic against other Christian churches. In other retellings of the first vision, you have, oh, the Lord told me that all these churches were corrupt. I should join none of them. And their lips are, they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. All this other language about the creeds are abominations. Like none of that uh, polemic against other churches is in here. It does talk about the apostasy, but it doesn't have this like full-on attack on other churches and it doesn't in here have like we're the one true church language explicitly i think many faithful saints will read that into the text and obviously that's the perspective of the authors of the text but i think they were wise and and smart in realizing oh this is going to be a public proclamation that the whole world can see and we're gonna put our best foot forward and be good neighbors and not lead with with oh everyone else is is a, a abominable type of language. What did yeah? What did you have any reactions to that? Just an amen, really. I I appreciate you highlighting that focus on other folks not familiar with us and placing the focus on others' access to the restoration rather than the members. It's very much in line with what Elder Christofferson would later say about the restoration belonging to the world. And from the first line of the proclamation, it's evident that we as members are not the exclusive or even the primary focus. Yeah, I really think it's this is very much outward faced rather than inward faced. Like this isn't a message yeah. to us because we've already heard this many times. It's a, it, it's a yeah. proclamation to the world. It literally is in the in the title subtitle. Right. And I think they did the they did the best they could in articulating a passionate defense of where we're coming from and and how what we have is to bless the entire world i think i love the first line we solemnly proclaim that god loves his children in every nation of the world i think oh, that's dude, actually yes. that's radical for some latter-day saints um i i really think that that and then closing with the idea that the restoration is still unfolding and that god is making known his will yeah, is still yeah. really important because so many Latter-day Saints culturally think that, oh, we've we've got it all down. We're all set, as they say here in New England. We're all set, and, <laughs> and, we're, and we're not. Right, right. Um, there's a lot to be unfolded, and I, 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 I overall, I like this document. Cool, man. Then uh, the last thing we want to talk about in terms of uh, announcements or newsworthy items from this conference was the announcement of eight new temples. Looks like it's going to be Bahia Bia or hold up, let me get this right. Bahia Blanca, Argentina, Tallahassee, Florida, Lubumbashi, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Benin City, Nigeria, Syracuse, Utah, Dubai, United Arab Emirates, and Shanghai, China. Yeah, I th I didn't see those coming either. I mean, I also think the temple in Nigeria, like we've got a lot of, gr I think we're growing more in Africa than we are in the United States, if I, if I understand this right. 
at least in, in terms of convert growth. Right. But I think having our first temple in a Muslim-majority country. Yeah, that's huge. That's that's really interesting. And also having a, a temple in mainland China, that's also really mm. huge. That's the temple. So uh, before we move on to the content of General Conference, just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, so with regard to General Conference, one of the biggest themes I noticed was that of personal revelation. I was already kind of pondering the topic because of some things we had discussed on the show and questions listeners have shared with us from their own study and pondering. In the mentions of personal revelation I caught, I also noticed significant implications for folks on the margins. For example, in Brother Doug Holmes's talk, he said in discussing new youth programs that goals are simply a tool that help us connect with heaven through revelation, agency, and repentance to come unto Christ and receive his gospel deeper in our hearts. Also worth mentioning is something we discussed on the show last week, that uh, like goals, so too are prophets, the church, the scriptures, and the temple. They all exist to help us connect with heaven through revelation. Those things, these tools, these are not ends in and of themselves, but tools to the end of Christ. The primary purpose is to help us access Christ through personal revelation. Elder Anderson spoke of Joseph Smith heeding personal revelation against the ridicule of his peers and against the insistence of the ecclesiastical leaders of his day that the heavens were closed, that what he experienced wasn't real, and even going, as, going so far as to call what he said he experienced heresy. Despite their claims to ecclesiastical authority, there were truths that Joseph knew, he knew that God knew, and he could not deny them. As such, he persisted in performing his role in the Restoration. Similarly, Jane Manning James, in spite of not being able to enter the temple because of the color of her skin, she persisted to follow Christ as part of his restored church because she knew who she was and she knew that God knew who she was because of personal revelation. Many of our queer siblings, uh, they're, they're called apostates or heretics for affirming their identities and divine destinies. Many of them insist that a better day must come because they have a place in the plan of salvation as they are. They know it and they know that God knows it because of personal revelation. With this role, or sorry, with this knowledge of the role of personal revelation, we can persist as Joseph Smith did in fulfilling our unique roles in the restoration as it continues. A lot of people culturally in the church assume that their ability to receive personal revelation comes from the fact that they're a member of a church that's led by a living prophet and somehow their, a bit, their access to God is founded on the church's access to God. But really, it's actually backwards when you look at the first vision. What it's based on is Joseph's ability to seek personal revelation for himself which is what everyone is entitled to do. Mm. So really the, the, the implication goes backwards. It's not like, oh, we can reach God because, you know, Joseph did. 
It's that Joseph could reach out to God because anyone can. Mm. And I think that reframing it that way is so empowering because Joseph now provides an example of what we all can do. We can all go directly to God and get answers. That's right. the whole point of James 1.5. Right. And I think reframing it and turning it around really helps you understand the authority structure of the church. Yeah. And I'd like to introduce a new concept. In physics, you've got these different laws of thermodynamics and what the physicists did is they, they started with the first law of thermodynamics and they had, then they came up with the second law of thermodynamics and then they realized, oh, there's this more foundational principle that really needs to go at the top of the list. Mm. So they came up with this thing called the zeroth law. That is so interesting. And so we've got this idea of a first presidency in the church. I'm going to come up with this concept of a zeroth presidency, which is even more foundational. And that is the individual witness of the person that's based on personal revelation from the Spirit. Everything in the church is based on that authority. Like when a convert believes in the Book of Mormon based on Moroni's promise, it's founded on their individual testimony that is the result of personal revelation. And everything else they do and believe is based on that, including sustaining the first presidency is an outgrowth of that more basic zeroth level authority, the individual unassailable conscience of the individual believer. And I think that is the foundation of everything else, including the our confidence and our consent, uh, common consent in the right. church, all of that rests on this more foundational zeroth presidency of the individual believer's conscience receiving revelation from the spirit. Mm. Brilliant, brilliant. That's th so that's the final authority in the, the church. Zeroth authority. That is the, the personal revelation. Yes, yes, the final authority. That is the yeah. Really cool, man. Really cool. Any other uh, themes that you noticed that uh, spoke to this uh, idea of personal revelation before we explore these other themes? Well, I just loved the fact that almost everything tied back to Christ-centeredness both the restoration mm. it wasn't about glorifying joseph or the church it's about pointing people to christ and then getting out of the way that's really what the that's exactly what you know heavenly father did as soon as heavenly father got the microphone he said oh i'm turning it over to jesus hear him yeah yeah so even heavenly father models the fact that the whole point is to turn over the microphone to christ mm -hmm. and i love that the more we turn over the microphone to christ the more Christ turns it over to the marginalized and says, hey, look, you've got to, you know, treat those who are disadvantaged by the power structures of the world. You mm -hmm. got to you mm -hmm. got to take care of them. You got to listen to them. I also think it was very interesting that there was a, mostly a lack of emphasis on the virus. Elder Holland and President Nelson talked about these a little bit, um, especially Elder Holland. But most people didn't rewrite their talks in light of the virus. And I think partially that was logistic in terms of they have to have their talks done so far in advance for translation and publication and everything. And, and, and but, but on the other hand, I think it's actually a blessing because we're going to be studying these talks for many months, many years, and we didn't want all of them to be about the virus. I think that would be a little bit too much for people to handle. Perhaps. So I'm glad that... Um, but I'm glad that at least some people had measures of hope and resilience spoken into this this crisis. Yeah, definitely, definitely. The other theme I uh, noticed was that how often women's access to the priesthood and ability to wield the priesthood was mentioned. 
I counted five talks in which women's continuing roles in the restoration, their access to the priesthood and their ability to actually wield the priesthood were mentioned. I noticed that President Joy D. Jones was the first to bring it up. Then, uh, yeah, Sister Bingham brought it up. Elder Suarez brought it up. Elder Oaks talked about it, too. Elder Oaks did talk about it, too. Yeah, so, like, there was just several instances where this idea of women's access to the priesthood was brought up and was put out in front. But even more impactful than that, I think, was the fact that, like, right out the gate, we had a talk about women for women given by a woman in a general session of conference, which is very significant. Not too long ago, we spoke about the significance and the radical feminism of Jacob when he called out the Nephite men in front mm-hmm. of their women regarding their failures to their wives. Right. I remember lamenting last year when President Nelson decried the abuse of priesthood power in women's session because the men weren't there to hear it in real time and therefore be held accountable in the same way that uh, the Nephite men were by Jacob's words. But this time, a woman is speaking in conference, or sorry, in a general session, meaning that both men and women are present, and she's declaring that, one, women have power, and two, that they have a role in the continuing restoration. Again, a thought that was echoed later by both Elder Suarez and uh, Sister Jean Bingham. So uh, while significant, I I can't say to what degree, nor do I think I should try. But other than that, Sister Jones, she also affirmed the role of personal revelation in our lives, declaring that all of us should expect personal revelation. Uh, I know she was focused on uh, women in that particular moment, and I think we need to uh, raise that up, the fact that she spoke directly to the women about their ability to expect personal revelation, But I'll also say that has profound implications for anybody else who may feel like they may not have access to the priesthood because of their status uh, in the church or status period. Yeah, and this is definitely an ongoing conversation. I wonder where, you know, women's roles and authority and empowerment in the church will be in 10 years, you know. Um, We've had some surprising changes just in the past few years. It's it's curious to where, where those will lead. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. So um, before I move on from that particular thing, there was something, I don't know if you noticed on Twitter the reactions to uh, Sister Jean Bingham's talk about uh, complementarianism. Yeah, I noticed uh, some of these reactions. Okay, well, that's all I'll say about that. I'm going to put a uh, link in the show notes to a great article about... about, uh, complementarianism and egalitarianism by uh, Rachel Held Evans. It just did a really good job of explaining to me and articulating why women would have an issue with that talk if they had an issue with that talk. Well, I just want to name that that uh, women in the church are going to have diverse perspectives and different experiences and there's um, not all women in the church. And so that's why we as allies, feminist allies, need to be very careful about how we we characterize these things but I just do want to say that I think all the s- sisters who spoke in conference are doing the best they can to advance the roles of women within the lines and framework that they've been given and they may not have control over those lines and, and that framework right 
so I can't judge them individually uh, and say, oh, they're, you know, I, I don't, I don't have their lived experience. I'm not in their position. But I think that what I do want to say is they're trying the best they can. Um, and this really, the the biggest evidence of this, what I'm saying right now, is the fact that whenever they want to say something a little bit edgy, they always quote a man as their justification for it. Because <laughs> within this climate, they have to. Like whenever they say, oh, we have priesthood power and authority, they they probably don't feel empowered to say that on their own uh-huh. in this context. They always have to quote a man who said that it's okay for them to say that women do have priesthood power and authority in their callings and in their families and, and so forth. Um, I look forward to the day where women in the church are able to speak on their own authority and say, well, I said it, and I don't need to quote a man to say that I have authority, that I have the authority to say it myself. Hopefully we will get to that point. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, if there are no other themes that we want to explore during conference, uh, I do want to get into some particular talks I really wanted to talk about Sister Bonnie Corden's talk because she dropped a lot of bars. I really loved her story about feeding chickens with Elder Perry because it beautifully illustrated the necessity of being intentional in how we let our light so shine before men. In that story, she talked about how Elder Perry followed her in the dark to feed chickens. Sister Corden had a light, but she was not deliberate about where she shined it, and consequently, Elder Perry fell in the ditch. She then followed this up with a story of Jesus and the woman at the well, a significant choice given that in addition to being a woman, she was also a Samaritan and an outcast. Jesus was aware of her needs and he met her where she was. Their conversation moved from something as familiar and common as wells and water to a declaration of his divinity that she was able to accept and in turn share with other people, he having built a bridge through compassionate dialogue. So what I learned from this is that Jesus, as the one with the light, he initiated the building of the bridge. Jesus, as the one with the light, compassionately listened. Jesus, as the one with the light, he made his blessings accessible for someone who would accept them in spite of her status. That is our responsibility to those without the gospel, especially the marginalized. As the ones with the light, it's on us to follow the Savior's example and meet folks where they are, that we might shine a light on their path to Christ. We cannot shine a light of gospel truth on their paths if our hearts contain the darkness of prejudice ignorance. We, we are, we're not going to have much success in the queer community, for example, if we don't believe that they're entitled to the same blessings as the rest of us. We can't meet them where they are. We can't shine a light for them. We, If we want to meet black folks where they are, we need to show them how the restored gospel liberates them and affirms them. And that's hard to do if we have yet to fully reckon with and name our past racism as a church. It's hard to do while black people continue to frequently suffer institutional injustices and we infrequently say anything. It's hard to do when we uphold political and cultural policies and norms that harm people that look like us. Overall, the Savior teaches us that it's our job as the ones with the light to make the gospel accessible to people. Yeah, that's so great. And and I loved how this ties into this idea of just because you have light and you can shine it and wave it around wherever you want, 
that can be completely misdirected and not helpful, not effective to anyone. Um, and right. that is so right. true when we get into speaking to marginalized people. You can have truths and you can wave them around and it actually doesn't help anyone. Right. I think the best analogy that I want to give to this is from one musician to another is the idea that um, every key on a piano is true. That there are 88 keys on the piano and they are all true. As long as your piano's in tune, you can play one key and it, and it sounds a pretty note. But what will happen if you bang on one of those keys over and over and over and over? That's not music. What happens if you bang on all of them? That's not music either. There's a time and a place for everything. And I think a lot of people are socialized. I hate to stereotype, but many straight white men are socialized to, to think that if something is true, they can say it whenever they want. And that's mm -hmm. actually not that's not valid. I mean, right. there is it's a basic principle of spiritual and social competence that just because something is true doesn't mean that you have the right to say it. And the best example of that is like suppose I have a friend who has a newborn uh, baby and they bring the baby to me and say, look at my baby. And if the first thing out of my mouth is your baby has a non-zero chance of dying today which is 100% true. It is absolutely true. Like, we could all die. I mean, it's non-zero. It's unlikely, but it's literally true. But but look, you just don't say that. Just because something right. is true doesn't mean that you have the the social entitlement to say it. And I think that is so true. When people speak to LGBTs especially, they will make statements like, well, the, the proclamation says, or... Elder Packer said or Elder Oaks said, and yes, it is a true fact that Elder Oaks said that or Packer said that. or the, So they're, they're saying something that's true, but that is totally not okay. Right. Um, it doesn't help anyone. It's um, and Even if you believe that thing that you're quoting, it's like waving this flashlight around in a way that doesn't actually help anyone. Right. And I, we see this all the time online as well. People think oh, that yeah. just because something is true – or they believe it to be true means they can say it whenever they want. And I'm like, nope, there's a time to be silent. You know, right. music would be boring if there were no rests, if there were no silences, if there were no back and chains. You need to play different notes and you need to take a break from certain notes at certain times. And yeah. that's okay. Yeah, definitely. I like that analogy. Thank you for making it relevant to me. Thank you for meeting me where I was. Derek. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Thanks. Look at what you did. You're welcome. All right. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of other one-liners that may be worth mentioning, but uh, perhaps we should go ahead and uh, move on to Elder Holland's talk, unless you have any other talks you wanted to mention before. I had before. just um, a couple of things. All right, Who yeah. was it? Elder, Elder Cook said, was it Elder Cook that said personal revelation is as important as prophetic re revelation? I believe it was. His whole talk was focused on yeah. revelation and personal revelation. That's yeah, probably I think that's talk. it. That's important to name. Um, I want to say one thing about Elder Suarez's talk where he said something very interesting. Right. I don't remember the exact words, but he basically said, we can see the Book of Mormon more like a revelation than like a translation, especially the way we normally think of a translation as like a scholar knowing one language and, and just conveying it into the other. Because uh -huh. that's not what, what, uh, what Joseph did. Right. And I think that opens up a lot of possibilities for scholars of the Book of Mormon to look at it and realize, oh, look, there's room for 
19th century material in the text of the Book of Mormon as it's published in English, right? Uh-huh. Um, because if it's a revelatory experience and not a direct word-by-word translation, then it makes it possible for jo- for the creative and um, revelatory mind of Joseph to receive inspiration to include uh, 19th century language in the text, which I think could cause people a problem, but but these things are in the text because he's translating it into the religious idiom of his day, and I, I totally think that that's fair, and I think setting up people to be more resilient about their expectations of the Book of Mormon will save a lot of heartache in the long run once we have more scholarly attention on really what is the exact literary nature of the text of the Book of Mormon. Gotcha. There, there are many other one-liners, but let's get to Elder Holland's talk. Yeah, Elder Holland's talk. Uh, definitely a highlight for a lot of people for, um, for several reasons, but particularly because what he ended up saying during the second half of his talk after briefly mentioning COVID-19. He went to say that when we have conquered this, and we will, we may be committed to freeing the world from the virus of hunger and free neighborhoods and nations from the virus of poverty. May we hope for schools where students are taught, not terrified they will be shot, and for the gift of personal dignity for every child of God, unmarred by any form of racial, ethnic, or religious prejudice. Undergirding all this is our relentless hope for a greater devotion to the two greatest commandments, to love God by keeping his counsel, to love our neighbors by showing kindness, compassion, patience, and forgiveness, These two directives are still and forever will be the only real hope we have for giving our children a better world than the one that they know now. Yo, there's a lot to unpack in there. There's there's a lot worth exploring in there. Do you want to start, Derek? Yeah, let me just say um, some elements of this uh, talk reminded me of every white person's favorite black person, Dr. Martin Luther King. Oh, dang. And... (laughs) Because three of the major problems that Dr. King focused on were capitalism, militarism, and racism. Holland, Elder Holland, hit on all three of Dr. Mm-hmm. King's priorities. He talked about poverty. He talked about guns and the idea of you know free access to guns, which some people are talking about school shootings in America, but I also think it encompasses children trying to learn in, in in countries and nations that are torn apart by war. I think that is also a very much a relevant application of Holland's talk. And then, of course, racial and ethnic and religious prejudice. I, I think it's so prophetic. And I loved how he said that the rising generation deserves better from the church, um, especially on these issues. And I loved the fact that the implications of what he said should be earth shattering because he said we should sure. attack these other problems with the same passion, the same organization, and the same effort that we have with the virus. We like shut down the world. We're willing to shut down the right. world in order to stop this virus. We should do the same thing with racial and ethnic mm-hmm. injustice, with white supremacy, with yeah. violence, with economic injustice. We should shut down the world, do everything we can to stop these things. That is the literal. This isn't even stretching (laughs) what Elder Holland said. This is the literal implication of what he directly said 
is we need to have the same effort in combating these things. I'm like, wow, this is prophetic. This is a message that should be shared with the entire world. And I loved how Elder Holland summarized his whole talk with hope. You got to have hope, especially LGBT people. We have to have hope because the appearances are against us, but we walk by faith and not by sight. Yeah, man. I, I thought about LGBTs as soon as he said that some just hope for a marriage. And I really, I really love how he connected hope back to the restoration as if to say that the marginalized in the church have every reason to hope for the better. Because the restoration reaffirmed the foundational truth that God does work in this world, we can hope, we should hope, even when facing the most insurmountable odds. That's what he said uh, with regard to hope. And then he went on to say that if so many of our 1820 hopes could begin to be fulfilled with a divine flash of light to a mere boy kneeling in a patch of trees in upstate New York, why should we not hope that righteous desires and Christ-like yearnings can be marvelously, miraculously answered by the God of all hope? We all need to believe that what we desire in righteousness can someday, some way, somehow yet be ours. Close quote. Yo, I, I about lost it at that delivery, man. It's, I, I don't know if irony is the right word, but it's just, it's quite beautiful that in this church where patriarchy, white supremacy, and homophobia have more influence than they ought to, the church's very inception gives us hope that all of those things will be done away with. Yeah, I mean, to me, it doesn't seem Im impossible for change to happen. In fact, it for me, it seems more impossible that change won't happen. Like, it's it's unthinkable that God will will abandon us as not just the LGBTs but the whole church to dwindle in in darkness and um, and lack of information and um, rather than give us the the illumination of of new knowledge and understanding. I th I just think it's impossible for God to not do that in in due time. And this reminds me also so much, we can come back to Elder Holland, but I want to talk about Elder Stevenson's talk where he talked about the foundations of the temple. And there's a really interesting lesson to be learned there because he basically said, you know, our pioneer ancestors in the 19th century did the best they could with the prevailing understanding of architecture. They just did what everyone else was doing. It was the best they could at what their time, but that doesn't mean that we need to be held back by their limitations just because there are our ancestors in the faith, that we need to do what we need to do, including, you know, four years, multi-hundreds, I imagine this is hundreds of millions of dollars, to literally unearth the foundations of the temple and redo them. I'm like, this is exactly what we need to do with issues around race in the church and women in the church and LGBTQ people in the church, that just because we inherited some structure, you know, like the structure on the family, that was developed earlier in the church. Like that is the best people could do with the prevailing understanding because the prevailing understanding in the early 20th century was that same gender relationships are either criminal or they're a mental defect or an illness of some sort. Like that is the foundation that people were, and I, I'm being a little bit charitable here saying they were doing the best they could with what they knew, but they were just really doing what the rest of the world was doing. There was no revelation, no insight, no special um, Latter-day Saint insight that was 
different from what the rest of the world was doing at this time. Like, no one was, was really pro-gay at that time. So they were doing the best they can with what they had at the time. Now the question is, what do we do now? And if we take Elder Stevenson's lesson to heart, we should uproot the foundations of this church if necessary. Just like we can go back and, and redo the foundations of architectural structures, we should also go back and redo the foundations of our teachings on family structures. There is no excuse for not taking a second look at this because there is a, there's a cost. There's, a, there's sort of a, a financial and emotional cost to saying, you know what? Our ancestors did something and it's not good enough for, for today's standards. And what we're doing around um, people of color, women, and LGBTQ people in the church, it is not up to the standards that we all know are the right things to do at this time. And now that we, we have these new standards, we need to have a complete seismic upgrade in how we treat these topics. Like we know more about mental health. We know more about orientation. We know more about gender identity. We know more about all these things. And just as the leaders of the church are looking to the best scientists and engineers and geologists and trusting them, we should do the same with the best psychologists, the best medical professionals, the best people who know. And this isn't like caving into the sin and the wisdom of the world. This is just doing your job. It's no more sinful to do that than it is to go to new architects today and say, look, please do what you need to do to save our temple from from what will happen if we don't fix it. So I don't have anything else to add to that. I'm just going to add an amen to that. And I think I we already hit on uh, the themes from Elder Holland's talk that I want to discuss, that particularly of his keep the same energy-esque, uh, uh, you know, prophetic exhortation, and also his talk about hope. Was there anything else you wanted to discuss in that particular talk? No, other than the fact that when we look at the restoration, the first vision, I see hope everywhere. Maybe that's just my personality, and if there's people who don't see hope, I'm not judging them. I think there's a lot of hope. The heavens are open. The Lord loves us, um, cares for the church. The, the church members and leaders have agency, which is a little bit of a snag in the system. But um, there is no other way. I mean, the Lord works through persuasion and not through control. And so we're going to be sometimes dragged into new truths. And that's that's the way it is. But we will not be lost forever. We have hope. And I think hope in the time of coronavirus is really important as well, that no matter how bad things look, there is at least something that we can hold on to. Cool. Just before we wrap up, just wanted to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest release. Listen to these new shows at the Di and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. So by way of housekeeping... Um, Derek, where can people find us? 
Well, you can find us on beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, and you can see how we what we did over throughout the course of the conference. You can also uh, find us on Instagram and Facebook. At BTBLDS, that is our handle. We also wanted to take a moment to uh, thank uh, the people who have been helping us with the podcast. As the podcast gets bigger, things are, you know, could be easier for us to manage. So we just wanted to give a quick shout out to uh, Tamara Kemsley, who has, uh, you know, edited our last episode and has been, you know, working with us generally on the podcast. Also want to thank David Doyle, Lauren Johns, and all those other folks who have been helping us transcribe and edit uh, the podcast episodes, making these things accessible and easier to listen to for other people. So uh, thank you guys. Is there anything else we should put out there before we wrap up, Derek? Nope, that's it. But thank you so much for sticking with us during this time. Really does mean a lot. Thanks for listening. Till we meet again next week.